Welcome to the Reed Connected Podcast, where brother and sister hosts, Dr. Gerald Reed and myself, Alexis Reed, team up to discuss different facets of learning and well-being together and with other experts in the field. This podcast is about presenting ideas, concepts, strategies, and skills that are relevant to the primary topics of mental health, well-being, performance psychology, education, learning, and executive functioning. In this podcast, we aim to focus discussions through the lens of helping individuals determine best paths for themselves throughout the lifespan. In particular, we'll focus on three aspects of an individual's development, which are a secure self, feeling secure within oneself and life, a connected self, feeling connected with others and a larger purpose, and a strong self, feeling capable to efficiently navigate one's life and challenges all of which come together to become a guide for purposeful work and living. So who are we? Dr. Gerald Reed is a clinical psychologist in private practice in the Boston area, sport and performance psychologist. He's trained in neuropsychological assessments and is a professor, author, and songwriter. I myself am Alexis Reed, an educational therapist, executive function coach, educator, learning consultant, speaker, author, and have a passion for universal design for learning, executive function, and social emotional learning. Gerald and I have had the privilege of being educated and trained at premier institutions and work alongside incredible mentors and experts in our fields, whom we look forward to introducing you to through this podcast. In our private practices, we've worked diligently and thoughtfully often collaboratively, to best support our patients and clients, aiming to connect the dots from a more holistic perspective. Additionally, we're both grateful to work with dedicated educators and therapists, as well as those in training, to support them in their professional development journeys. We're committed to inspiring hope through learning here in this podcast as we share similar messages across all that we do. Whether you're working to support others professionally, or a caregiver, learner, or just figuring things out for yourself, there'll be so much for you to explore along with us at Read Connected Podcast. However, please be advised that the content of this podcast is not intended to be a replacement for medical care, psychotherapy, or other services you may benefit from. Again, the purpose is to share concepts, ideas, strategies, and skills that you may consider relevant to you. And we encourage you to seek out your own professional support when needed and appropriate, be it a psychotherapist, a counselor, medical doctor, tutor, executive function coach, performance consultant, whatever it may be, we hope you find it. We look forward to all the explorations we share together. Check the show notes for more information and episode takeaways. Subscribe to the podcast for future episodes. And you can follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast and Twitter at Read Connected. R-E-I-D connected. Thanks for coming along on this journey with us. And we offer that you be curious, be open, and be well. Welcome to the Read Connected podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Reed, and today I'm joined with Dr. Jason Fogler. Hey, Jason, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Alexis, glad to be here. How are you? Um, very well, thank you. I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation with you because you and I talk all the time and, and with other colleagues about ADHD and executive function and how to best support individuals and their families and support systems. 
to be able to navigate through some of the challenges that come up in their day to day, whether it be in the classroom or at home or in the workplace. And I wanted to take the opportunity in this episode to talk a little bit about our work because I find that most people don't even know that a job or a resource like me exists. And I assume you might feel the same sometimes. Oh, for, for sure. You know, I think there's like these buzzwords out in the world, like neuropsychological testing or cognitive behavioral therapy. And they're so broad sometimes that I think it's helpful to refine those definitions, especially when they refer to ADHD or executive function, because uh, those labels can mean different things depending on who you're working with. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I, you know, I call myself an educational therapist because I have a background in developmental and educational psychology. I've been privileged to work with some amazing therapists that I'm able to kind of bridge some of the gaps between the mental health wellness side of things and the learning side of things with a specialization, as we've talked many times before, on executive function skills. Because I kind of see those as the foundation for being able to do pretty much anything in life, but most especially to be able to learn well. And I really lean on Adele Diamond and Joel Nigg's work in amalgamating all of the definitions of executive function. And audience members will hear us talk about this quite frequently, that we think of these executive function cognitive skills as working memory, inhibition, and cognitive flexibility. And I think that's actually one of the most difficult things in talking about the work we do. As you mentioned, that there's so many different ways of conceptualizing and thinking about executive function as a buzzword. So hopefully we can kind of, you know, elucidate the audience a little bit as to what's really happening neuropsychologically, biologically, in performance motivation wise. And we'll talk about that in future episodes as well. But for today, you know, I just want to talk about the fact that executive function and understanding how to support this really important cognitive set of skills is really kind of nuanced. And it's a great privilege of mine, I feel, to be able to work with people to improve those skills. Oh, incredibly nuanced. Um, You know, it's likened to an orchestra for a good reason. If the orchestra is well-practiced and well-conducted, All you hear is beautiful music that sounds like it was always meant to be there, always meant to play that way. Perfect volume, perfect tempo, perfect everything. If any of those players isn't quite performing up to task, if the conductor's a little off, if someone's instrument is broken, you will quite literally hear, you know, something's off about the music. Something squeaked. Suddenly the sound dropped out wait, they seem to wait too long before that next measure kicked in. And executive functioning is a lot like that. We really don't appreciate how much it does across how many domains of life until it's not working. We pretty much go effortlessly through our day, but all that goes into coordinating our minds and bodies to stick to schedule, to make sure we stop at stoplights, monitor traffic, you know, you name it, executive functioning's involved in it. And we don't notice that it's a problem until something really goes awry. 
That's such a great point. And I think, you know, when we do see these things seamlessly happening automatically, it seems, we don't often notice what is involved in that process until, like you say, things don't go well. And I think there's a lot of expectation that a lot of these skills and behaviors just automatically come online all the time. And also that if you've been able to do something well once that you'll do it again in the same way as efficiently or as well as you have in the past. And there's just so many factors that are involved that can really impact this quite vulnerable set of skills because they are so closely related to the emotionality behind any performance or task that we're asked to do. So, you know, when we think about how the brain is developing and the prefrontal cortex is still coming online close to when, you know, individuals are turning 30 years old, these set of executive function skills in the prefrontal cortex is still developing, which I think is a great benefit because that means we have more time to work on establishing good habits and developing these skills in a positive and efficient way. But it's just so interesting when we take a step back and think about the inner workings of things. And I use in the work that I do, both with one-on-one learners that I work with across the lifespan from seven or eight-year-olds all the way up to adults. And I, I use this image of a cable stay bridge. And I use the Zakem Bridge because it's here in Boston, which I'm quite familiar with and some of our audience might be familiar with that it's a really busy bridge because you know it's going over the Charles and the actual bridge, the road that's being traveled over reminds me of the behaviors that we just expect of learners and individuals, right? We expect to be able to just get from point A to point B. And those behaviors I like to talk about in the terms that most people refer to when they talk about executive function, being able to plan, organize, manage time. So if Like you said, something doesn't go well. Maybe there's a pothole that comes up. We might start to see it not working or feeling as comfortable and automatic as we would like for it to be. But this bridge is not the only component in the system. There's so many different things going on, which is why I use a cable stay bridge as an example, because each one of those cables is almost like another piece of the process, another concept or another component of being able to support these behaviors to work well and to come online. So I think of what we were talking about, response inhibition, working memory, task initiation, cognitive flexibility, emotional control, sustained attention, progress monitoring, having metacognitive skills to think about your own thinking and learning, to be able to self-advocate for what you need, understand yourself as a learner, having a growth mindset, being mindful and aware. There's so many different factors that help for those skills to come online to be able to do the things we want to do. Yeah, I, I loved when you introduced me the first time to the cable stay bridge. You know, and as you say, each of those cables, right, can be one of those um, cognitive functions. We've been talking in shorthand about the prefrontal cortex. You know, that's right in the middle of your forehead, separates us from most of the animal kingdom, except maybe dolphins. And that is the command center of executive functioning. But that part of the brain is coordinating with other parts of the brain. So we often talk about frontotemporal activity 
every time we have to retrieve information from memory, name all the words that you know that start with the letter F, right? That's engaging actually two parts of the brain working in tandem. And if you could imagine, and I hope this never happens, right? One of those cables snaps on the bridge, you'd find out in a hurry, whoa, I needed that skill. But, you know, one cable's gone. All right, your drive's a little more wobbly, but you're still getting across. And if you can imagine someone was either born with neurodevelopmental challenges or had a head injury that actually injured parts of the brain that's involved in coordinating all those different parts, you would see very quickly how critically you need all these different elements working in tandem Alexis, you you asked me to tell uh, my recap of Phineas Gage, and, and there's some wonderful online material as well that can supplement this. So uh, the year is 1850. Phineas Gage is a railroad worker. He tamps down a little too much gunpowder into a, uh, a small pit. He hits his hammer on a railroad spike. A spark flies. The gunpowder explodes and puts a very large iron rod through his orbitofrontal cortex. Poor man takes a railroad spike through the orbitofrontal cortex, and if you read the journal article that came from that, the doctor on scene who worked with him basically did all the things one should not do in neurosurgery, which was douse the area with alcohol, cut out neurons, pretty much did a number on an injury that was already bad. The man lived remarkably and went from being a very pious soft-spoken guy to a gambler, having a terrible potty mouth, really disinhibited. And that was the first, I guess you would say, neurobiological or neurosurgical evidence that if you injure this part of the prefrontal cortex, you can change a person's ability to inhibit their responses. Okay, so hold on to this moment in America. Across the ocean in 1850, Heinrich Hoffmann, a physician and political cartoonist, is making cartoons about Zappel Philip, Fidgety Phil, Look Up in the Air Johnny, and various other children that he was seeing who basically were not fitting into the modern idea of sit still and behave. And interestingly enough, these two events are going on across the ocean, and one could say the zeitgeist was there was this interest in finding a biological reason via Phineas Gage for these societal problems that Heinrich Hoffman was writing cartoons about and who Sir George still at Harvard in 1902 wrote a paper about with um, the moral deficits of children, basically describing hyperactive kids. Sidebar. Sir Alexander Crichton in 1790 noted early nervous disorders that sounded a lot like ADHD, but it wasn't until this kind of turn of the century confluence of events that we started to think about an injury to the brain can create behavioral problems. And then we get up to in the 60s talking about mild cognitive impairments, the idea that there is this reason for problematic behavior from a brain lesion that hasn't been discovered yet. And that's how we get on the pathway to studying and talking about executive dysfunction. You know, another part that we talk about a lot is frontoparietal communication. The parietal part of the brain is what helps us with spatial relations. 
we use that part of the brain and we call it the cognitive scratch board whenever we have to keep a phone number in our head, right? Someone gives us a phone number, we're literally keeping it on the scratch board of our mind until we dial it. If that part of the brain is not working well, if working memory isn't keeping those seven digits in mind, you could see someone struggling considerably because we use working memory not only to retain phone numbers. Um, someone asked us to do a math problem, a computing change at the cash register. Um, there's all kinds of reasons and ways in which we're using all of these subtle, uh, let's call them virtual spaces of the brain. Right. When parts of the brain are working in tandem, they create these kinds of virtual electrochemical little factories to get something done. And I've only just named three parts of the brain right now. Right. We can extend that to frontooccipital and we could extend that to frontocerebellar. There are so many ways. And if you get down into frontolimbic controlling emotion. There are so many ways in which our brains just do remarkable things all at once. But much like if you had too many apps open on your phone, you would have a crash. And that can certainly happen with a typically developing brain during the COVID pandemic. We've certainly been stretched to our limits. But if you've been born with some neurodevelopmental challenges, those might be with you from much earlier days. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we've seen almost like the cables getting a little bit weaker during the COVID pandemic when we noticed, you know, a lot more individuals. I can't even just say kids, a lot of adults too are recognizing that sometimes it's harder to get started when you're feeling this emotional turmoil or other things that are constantly changing or you're worried about and you don't know how to navigate through them, right? So the, the bridge has felt a little bit weaker over the past few years. And you'll hear me talk a lot more about this in future episodes, but it's a reason why I really love universal design for learning because it really considers all these other factors in helping to support individuals and learners across the lifespan to better navigate through situations and learning environments, right? Making sure that we're presenting information in different ways, because as you mentioned, the different parts of the brain, different regions of our brain will light up and come online when information is presented in different ways. So if there's an over or under stimulation of how information is getting embedded and ingrained in our whole systems as we're learning new things, it could actually impact the way in which we perform and show what we know. So all of these things are so interrelated and we'll definitely talk more about this in future episodes, but really considering how vulnerable this foundational set of cognitive skills can be and what we can do in the world to help support individuals and community members to be able to strengthen them. And that's the privilege that I see myself as having every single day, whether I'm working one-on-one -on -one with an individual client or if I'm working with a group, I run groups of high school and college age students to help them understand that sometimes even the really brightest, most creative, incredible people can also struggle sometimes and not have an automatic activation of this set of skills, which can feel quite intimidating and overwhelming and frustrating for a lot of people. Really nothing kind of gums up the works, so to speak, as much as stress hormones. Right. A brain that's flooded with cortisol and there's a ton of cortisol floating around in our brains right now. 
you know, whether it was from the pandemic or modern life or political turmoil or what have you, that will gum up the works. You know, that will make it very hard to concentrate, to learn. Attention's the gateway to learning, right? You have to focus on something to decide that this is worth committing to memory. And by the way, I'm going to apply this mnemonic to it so I can retrieve it easier next time. Every time a student takes pen to paper or fingers to a keyboard, they are saying, I'm applying my attention to this piece of information and I'm going to digest it in a way that I can use it later. If I'm preoccupied by the text I just got, by the shunning I might be going through on social media, it makes it that much harder to commit information to memory. You know, we, we share a number of patients, Alexis, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm a psychologist by training and my work has three buckets, I guess you'd say. One is an assessment and evaluation, psychological and neuropsychological testing. And we'll, we'll save another episode to bore people about what that's all about. I don't find it boring at all. I think everybody should have a neuropsych to understand how their brain works better. You heard it here first, folks. So so stay tuned for that. Uh, another bucket is in uh, parent guidance and talking with parents about how to structure their routines at home and make a point of catching their kids being good. Because if you have attention problems, you need to amplify the signal of what we want kids to do and not get too hung up on what we don't want them to do. So parent guidance is another bucket. And then I also work with the kids directly when they're older, when we're titrating responsibility from their parents to them. And if you have an executive functioning problem, that's three to five more years than typically developing kids are ready for that, right? So most eight-year-olds are able to sit at a desk and take an information. Well, we might have to add three to five years for someone who's got an executive functioning challenge. And most people are able to start organizing their time and setting goals for themselves, like saving for a car and applying to college in those middle teens. We might have to add three to five years. So I say a lot to the parents I work with, you know, this is an ultra marathon. I mean, I'm sorry about that. And I don't have silver bullets for that. But if we put the time in, we can do really great things. Right? Executive functioning, yes, it's an invisible disability if you have problems with it. But it doesn't have to define your life, right? People with all kinds of disabilities have climbed Everest. The same is true for people who have executive functioning challenges. Well said, well said. And the other piece that I'm really excited about for the podcast is that I hope to share many of the stories of some of the incredible individuals I work with who are chomping at the bit to be on the podcast and be able to share some of their stories because they want other people to know that it doesn't have to be something that just keeps you stuck, right? You can actually build skills and learn different approaches to doing things. But when you're in it, I say this all the time, that when you're in it, sometimes it feels like that's the only place you can be. And that when you get stuck or you feel overwhelmed or challenged, that there's no other way out. But in fact, that's a cognitive skill, right? This cognitive flexibility. Sometimes we get very rigid when we feel like there are no other approaches and paths. And you know, sometimes our work, Jason, is being able to reflect to others what maybe they don't see in those moments and to be able to give them some guidance and support and some strategies and skills to figure out how to navigate through things differently. And I'm really grateful to know you and your work. And in my work, I think we both don't like to prescribe what families and individuals have to do. We really help to guide them to solutions 
that are possible that they get to practice and try out on their own to say, yeah, this works in this context, but maybe not in others. And we get to guide them to figure out what's most helpful and what's actually going to be something that they could you know, get legs for to be able to use across time. Yeah, no, it's totally got to work for um, your family's life, your life. You know, I think a lot about it like um, living with diabetes or living with asthma there are certain ways you have to modify your life that are likely to be helpful, but that may mean different things for different people. And what works incredibly well for one person with diabetes may not so much for another. There's a family of techniques and technologies that are likely to be helpful, but you really do have to customize it for yourself and your family. And that's a fun part of the work we do. You know, we, we get to have some creativity in this and when we get to collaborate with people and figure out, okay, what set of these techniques, technologies, medicines is going to work for you? How is your three legs of the stool going to be designed? Oh, can you share more about that? Because I don't know if everybody knows about three legs of the stool and the way you conceptualize that. I love the way you talk about it. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. So three legs of the stool, if we're thinking about um, supporting certainly ADHD, but really a lot of developmental conditions. One leg is um, behavioral strategies at home or could be even at you know a therapeutic camp. One leg of the stool are uh, accommodations that you might get from a school or workplace. And one leg of the stool is often but not always medication. Everyone's stool is going to be a little different. And certainly when I'm running the parent groups I run, I'm just asking for families to keep an open mind about using all the legs of the stool that might be out there that could potentially be helpful. Because the evidence supports all of those legs of the stool. Different individuals might need different combinations of them at different points in their lives. But generally, you know, if someone's struggling and they're only using one of those legs of the stool, so to speak, I'm going to be talking with them about, well, have you considered this or this? For your listeners, our patients, a lot of people out there, right? Um, the idea of taking a medicine might be a little bit fraught, might be a little bit controversial. It should never be a sales pitch for medicine, but hopefully you have an open mind about considering how, hey, here's a leg of the stool that might be helpful for you at some point in your life. Yeah. And I think we need to explore options to be able to figure out what the best starting point is as people are recognizing that they can use resources to improve their lives, whether it is specifically on learning or just navigating through daily life or in the workplace. So I think it's really important to consider what are you willing to start with? What are you feeling most comfortable to be able to make yourself more available to doing some of this work? As you know, my brother Gerald Reeds talks about all the time that it, it's hard work to engage in any behavior change and to work on any kind of habits that you recognize just aren't serving you well. So when you engage in this kind of work, it's definitely not easy. I joke all the time with my clients and their families that we do hard work almost every time we meet but somehow we end up having fun while we're going through the process. And by facilitating and kind of co-creating with people we're working with, I think it also gives them a sense of agency that they feel like they have some control over this area of their life that they might not have felt that they had control over before. I feel really honored to have a role in that process because 
it can feel really heavy at different points in time. I have a lot of adult clients that I work with who have said, my whole life, something just always felt off and I couldn't really figure out why, but I've developed these strategies and I've compensated and I've been successful, but it's always been really difficult. And I feel grateful to be able to help them find other options that might not feel as difficult to get through a challenge or to do something that maybe doesn't come naturally to them. And it's just a wonderful thing. And I'm glad to be able to bring this information to our listeners so that they can kind of take stock and think about what are some of the things that go well in my life? What are some things that maybe I can build efficiencies with? Because executive function, it will vary and change throughout any individual's lifespan. And some things, like we said before, that worked in the past just might not work well later or in different contexts. And it's constantly an evaluation of what tool, what strategy, what skill, what approach is most helpful. And to be quite honest, a lot of the work I do is also about really figuring out what helps you to fill your own well, to think about your own well-being. And some of it is really thinking about self-care, thinking about integrating exercise, nutritious eating, thinking about how much water and sleep you're consuming each day and, and how all of that impacts the mental clarity that we're seeking as we're trying to improve our executive function skills and our attention and focus. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the sort of self-care stuff and exercise and diet because, you know, if, if you go online and you Google, you know, how do I start a new habit, you know, and you'll see a ton of those, you know, right around New Year's, those kinds of principles of schedule it, use the buddy system, commit to some time a day, those kinds of principles are very much applicable to the practice of self-organization as they are to working out or committing to a new kind of diet. And there are some tried and true principles that require some effort, certainly require some planning, but can affect remarkable change in your life, often in spurts, right? We slip, we drift. So much of this journey is about try, try again, and you've got your whole life to do it. And I, I would say to anyone who's listening to this, who feels like they've been there, done that, I would really gently entreat you to hang in there and try again. Each time you have a successful cycle of this, often you will see some really remarkable benefit. Yeah, and that's what I love about the newer neuroscience research and a lot of the empirical-based evidence that we use to guide a lot of the work that we do because it really shows what is effective, what is helpful, and there are ways to figure it out. But again, finding somebody that's going to be able to be a resource or a support or a group or a network to connect you to feel like you have some control over whatever is happening, especially if you're trying to improve your executive function skills is so key and so important. And, you know, I'm grateful for people like you, Jason, who do such great work to identify some of these things for individuals and help them figure out what that means for them in their lives, for supporting the parents and caregivers. And, you know, really helping to translate a lot of this information to educators who might see behaviors that come up and think they're just behaviors, but really to recognize that there might be some executive function struggles that are getting in the way that can sometimes be easily rectified with a little tweak here or there, or at least better supported in learning environments or at home or in the workplace. So 
stay tuned for more information about executive function. We have a whole series of episodes that are going to be coming out soon. And we're really excited to be able to share this knowledge. And again, if you feel like any of this sounds like you or somebody you know, feel free to do a search or talk to your primary care provider about who might be able to support you, whether they're an executive function coach or an educational therapist or a neuropsychologist or a clinical psychologist. There are a plethora of resources that are available to you and some really great websites also that can help give you more knowledge and information to best support you in your journey. So thanks for joining today for this episode. And thank you, Jason, for joining me as well. Look forward to more conversations. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza. Our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reed Connected podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season, so please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Reed Connected Podcast and Twitter at Reed Connected. R-E-I-D connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well.